The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 is our text this morning. And as I said, relationships. How well do you know Jesus Christ? How well do you understand that he, in his loving kindness, in his loving mercy, has set up an economy where we, his people, can have a deep, abiding relationship. As I've said before, when he created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he wanted fellowship. He wanted to rejoice and to bless and to cultivate a tremendous relationship with those he created. But sin severed that. And the wonderful examples of him coming down and walking in the cool of the evening with Adam and naming animals and fellowshipping with them, that was severed. But the reality is that when you and I accept Christ as our Savior, that relationship begins anew. That very same relationship of fellowship He doesn't come down and walk with us like he did with Adam and Eve. But even better, he gave us his Holy Spirit to live within us, to guide us into all truth, and to cultivate a deep, abiding relationship. Now, sometimes we're prone to look at some of these Bible characters and think, this this is just a little bit different than me. I mean, after all, the Apostle Paul was a very zealous, devout Jew, and he sought out to destroy Christians because he was so devoted to the law. And what it took was that fateful day on the Damascus Road where God knocked him off his horse, blinded him by a bright light, and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, that gets your attention. We don't experience those kind of things today, or do we? When the Spirit of God drew you to accept Christ as Savior, did you understand the tugging power of the Holy Spirit? Did you sense the overwhelming presence of God? I've thought about this many times since 2012 when God grabbed me by the neck, changed my life. And I've thought many times, boy, you know, that wasn't much different than Paul. Because he knocked me right on my face, took my career, and pointed me in a whole new direction. God desires deep fellowship with you. He wants to guide you every step of the way. He wants to be present in your struggles. I thought of that this week when we walked in. We drove in the parking lot, and as we drove around, half the parking lot was underwater, and it was flowing really fast. You can still see the silt line out there from where it started to recede. We thought, boy, that's terrible, and then we walked in the building and went, "Uh uh-oh. And in all that terribleness, you knew God was right in the middle of it. You knew God that was working something out, Maybe it's time to draw God's people together in a need, shoulder to shoulder, pitch in, strengthen us. But it's allowed by God. The Apostle Paul 
desired so deeply to know God in his sufferings, in his good times, that he writes in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's many things that distinguish Christianity from other world religions. The one obvious very key is that Jesus rose from the grave and that he ever lives to make intercession for you and I. And he desires a deep abiding relationship. Consequently, to know him personally, intimately, and experientially is the first and greatest goal of the believer's life. To know him deeply. And this was Paul's goal also. In Philippians 3, 10 through 11, is a great expression of it. Paul is spoken of as initial faith in Christ, and now he speaks of the goal of Christian living. Paul wanted to know Jesus. And as he writes about uh, his, his desire and the nature of that knowledge, it's very plain. First, it is to, be, it is to experience Jesus. Second, it is to know, or it is to know and have knowledge of his power. Third, it is to be learned even in suffering. And fourth, it is to result in a life that is a preview of our eternity. So let's take a couple of minutes and look at knowing God. And in the first place, experientially. The knowledge of Paul sought was experiential, and we must see and understand the aspect of his statement clearly. For without this understanding of Paul's desire, the verses themselves are meaningless. Here is the great apostle to the Gentiles, through whom we have learned all about Jesus, with all of his great rabbinical and historical knowledge. And someone might say to him, wait a minute, Paul. What do you mean you, know, you want to know Christ? I mean, everything we have learned has been from you. You've taught us about him. You've taught us about his death and his resurrection. You've made us know everything. What do you mean you want to know him? You don't know him? And I could hear Paul responding, You misunderstand me if you think my statement is to such knowledge in knowing about Christ. I want to know him personally. The word know has several different meanings in English as well as other languages. It can mean to have learned by a serious study. And this is the way someone might learn geometry or calculus. It refers to understanding. And this is the way we use the word when we say, I know what's going on. It can also refer to a type of head knowledge that Paul warns us about. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So Paul wanted to know Christ in the truest biblical sense, personally and experientially. 
And he wanted this to affect his day-to-day life. And this should be the deepest desire of you and I. Because when you have this knowledge of Christ, life doesn't happen to you. He leads you to it. Sometimes I think we live when trials and things come pouring upon us like we get slapped around. You know, you come in and here's a flood. Wow. Well, as a Christian, trusting Christ, we process through it and we move on. We know in this world we're going to have struggles. The Bible's very clear. There will be tribulations. And as I said earlier, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We're not exempt because we're Christians. We can't have an organized religion that helps us avoid all the struggles of life. It gets us through them, and it points to them, and it allows Jesus Christ to use them in a way that brings glory to him. Paul wanted to know Christ. A.J. Modier, a British scholar and writer, has said this, quote, We have largely lost the biblical dimensions of the word knowledge in our customary use of it. We confine it almost to the contents of the brain. The Bible would not resist this meaning, but neither would it uh, as a complete definition. First, it would add a practical dimension. Nothing is truly known unless it is being practiced daily or in some way allowed to control the conduct of the person concerned. It is to depart from evil, for example. Job 28, 28 says, And behold, and he said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So the fear of the Lord is not, I'm scared of him. It's a reverential trust. It's to be in awe of who he is. It's to understand the reality that even he is the creator of the universe and the sustainer of the universe. And as Colossians tells us, by by him all things consist. Yet he wants us to love him and to provide to us wisdom. Not man's wisdom, God's wisdom. When trials happen in your life, we're prone to react in what we know and how we process. But there's a whole different set of wisdom that comes from the Word of God. And when things rain down upon you, you go to the Word of God and you gain His wisdom and you bend the knee to Him in reverential trust. That's what He's talking about. And then we learn that to turn away from evil is understanding. Think how often our minds are clouded and our inability to make right choices when evil is clouding us, when our own fleshly, selfless desires rule and reign. Secondly, in knowledge between persons, to know is to enter into the deepest personal intimacy. Thus, the Bible does not say that Adam knew Eve in Genesis 4.1 because it's too shy to speak about sexual matters, but because it is that knowledge that binds husbands and wives together. Deep, intimate union. So consequently, having been saved wholly and solely by Christ, Paul wants to enter into the deepest possible relationship he can have with Christ. I want to know him. I want to experience him. I want the knowledge of his power. I want the knowledge of his resurrection. I want all of it. Because I want to be like Christ. I want his life to lead me every step of the way. Number two, 
Paul wanted to experience in power. Paul wished to know Christ's power. He writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, Paul's not speaking here of an abstract knowledge about the resurrection any more than he's speaking about an abstract knowledge of Christ. Paul knew all about, all about the knowledge of Christ, and he knew all about the resurrection. He knew the evidence for it, and he believed it as fact. He proclaimed it every time he preached. But here Paul is speaking of experiencing it. He states that in addition to knowing about the resurrection, he also wants to experience its power. He wanted to experience it by living in its power in a godly life. Do you know what it means to live in the power of the resurrection? You have been given a new life. You see, the thing I think we often forget is the moment you accepted Christ as Savior, your eternity began at that moment. True, when we get to heaven, everything will be glorious and different. But our glory is here now. He has my heart. I am now living for him. And this world may throw all kinds of things. It's okay. It's temporary. I know where I'm headed. And so my number one goal from the second I'm saved is to be like Christ. My number one goal is to know him, experience him, understand his power, know what he's doing, know what the resurrection means. I know it means I'll go to heaven, but right now it's power for me now because I can live and breathe and walk in that power because Christ lives in me. And that's what he's trying to do. That's the great goal. Now, he wanted to experience this power, and he knew for sure that in his flesh he had no ability to sustain it. In fact, he writes in Romans seven nineteen, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Sound familiar? He goes on to say in verse 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, the battle that Paul is fighting here is he knows he believes in God. He knows everything that Christ has promised to him. Yet in the flesh, this mind, he wages war. Because what happens to you and I when some trial comes into our life? What, what, what takes place? Fear? But, but I have Christ. Anxiety? But I have Christ. You see, when our mind begins to take over, we're pretty smart. We know what happens when these things happen. We know what happens. And so we're prone to fall victim and let that absorb us. So there is this constant battle raging in the mind. Paul longed for deliverance from such defeat through Christ's resurrection power. Paul longed to have a mind that constantly went straight to Christ when the bottom fell out. Paul was sensitive to power, as, as uh, many of his contemporaries were. Uh, his world was the world of power and most of it originating in Rome. You know, we see this all the time. The, the Jews were proud of their religious heritage. The Greeks were proud of their wisdom, but Rome was proud of their power. 
And Paul knew that power very well. And this was Paul's environment. And Paul had a genuine respect for Roman power. But Paul knew that at the best, Roman power was only the third greatest power. The second greatest power was the power of sin that holds people captive to what it wants to do. But the strongest power was the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, God's power. Paul knew that his power would overcome sin, death, and it was far more potent than any Roman army. And this is why Paul could say with such great clarity, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews tells us. And so by giving your life and your mind and your thoughts and your aspirations and your gold and life totally to Christ, you live through life under his power and direction. This enabled Paul to write in Romans 8, 1 and 4, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine that? No condemnation. Nothing. The most vile sin you have ever committed, it's gone under the blood of Christ, never to be seen again. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. You still hanging on to that sin? You still feel down? Whenever things start to go, you feel Satan whisper in your ear, yeah, but you're no good. Look what you did. It's gone, folks. You're free. You're free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So why keep walking in the flesh? You just keep beating yourself up. When you walk in the Spirit and you trust the Spirit, you are free, free indeed. The power of Jesus Christ is the great reality. One songwriter penned it like this. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So there are two dynamics working here. My sins are canceled. But... What's in me that causes me to keep sinning has no power any longer. You are free not to sin. And sometimes, I think as children of God, we need to just stop, push back, and dwell on the fact, I don't have to sin. I don't have to sin. I have been given freedom. The power of Christ dwells in me. When I rest in him and he's in control, I'm walking in the spirit. Nothing can touch me. The things of life will happen. Things will attack you. People will wrong you. People will lie to you. But his grace is sufficient. And he gets you through every step of the way. And Paul wanted to experience this resurrection power for Jesus Christ over sin daily. 
as he strove to live a holy life before his Savior. And then number three, the fellowship of his suffering. This does not mean that Paul wanted to suffer for human sins because only Jesus Christ can do that. Paul wished to join in Christ's suffering in a different sense. He wished to stand with Christ in such an indivisible union that when the abuse and persecution that Christ suffered fell on him and he knew it was coming, he could receive it and receive what it was as Jesus did. He wanted to react like Jesus because he knew that abuse received like this would actually draw him closer to Jesus Christ. Such suffering will always come to Christians. We need to know that. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter 4, 12-13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, because we're human and because we're stubborn and because we struggle, testing sometimes is the thing that jerks you back into reality and makes you realize, oh man, I do need Christ. I do need his power. Why do we need to be tested because like Paul, it's what strengthens us. Consider for a moment 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weaknesses. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Who wants to be weak? For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The power is Christ, not yourself. Original plan, as I said, was sweet fellowship with the Lord, but sin knocked that out. And sin also destroyed this world. Our glory... Our place of intense joy is coming. But for now, understand that where we live, we live in a dark world. All you have to do is watch the news feeds all week long. There's not a corner of this earth that has not experienced calamity right now. Every corner of this world. So it's important for you and I to rest on his power. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's coming, folks. Embrace it. Don't run from it. Don't try to change the world. Read the Word of God and see what God has given you to live, live through it. Because the way you and I live through it is the greatest testimony the world will ever see. Don't run from it. Embrace it. Allow Christ to live through you in a powerful, powerful way. And when these things come, they don't have to be tragic. On the contrary, they can draw you closer to Jesus while allowing his life to be clearly seen in you. So here's a warning. The knowledge of Christ's suffering comes at a very high price. 
the price of total obedience. Paul writes of becoming like him in his death. How is Jesus in the death? He embraced it. He died for his father. He died to save you and I. If Paul is called upon to die, he'll die. But you and I are called to die every day. We're to die to self. We're to die to our own joys and our own plans and our own excitement. Not that they're wrong, but die to them so they don't take the place of what Christ is doing in your life. And when you're walking holy with Christ, you can challenge anything this world throws at you. So to understand this phrase, we must go back to chapter 2 of that letter where Paul speaks of Christ's obedience in death and holds it up as a pattern for Christian living. He argues that Jesus was so careful to obey his Father that he laid aside the outward mantle of his glory. He took it aside and he took on the form of human nature enduring the sufferings of this world. And that even dying in complete obedience to the Father. The fellowship of Christ's suffering is won at the price of such radical and total obedience. The more you obey Christ, the more you rise up in victory. It's just a common thread. So, are you like Jesus? Are you careful to obey God completely, even at the expense of open persecution or real suffering? We may not be far from open persecution in this country. Are you ready? Can you say with Paul that you want to fellowship in his sufferings? The sooner we get the word into our hearts and to surrender to the Spirit, the sooner we'll be able to say, Yes, not my will, but yours be done. So, to know his resurrection now. In the last phrase of these goals, Paul, he tells why he desired to know Christ completely and to be like him in his death. It is that he might, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul is not saying that he's afraid for his eternal security. He's not saying he has to work for it. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Boy, if that doesn't fire you up, I don't know what will. When you have Christ, no matter what you do, you'll never lose your salvation. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Trust Christ, you're secure for eternity. So why not start living like secured people? He knows that God will bring him safely to heaven. He's thinking about something else here. He is saying that he wishes to be so much like Christ in the way that he lived that people would look at him as if he was already resurrected. That's what Paul's saying. He wants to walk around on earth and people look at him as if he's already died and been resurrected because of the way he's living. 
So here's the interesting part about this that'll give us some clarity here, give us understanding. And the first clue we have is in the Greek text. The word for resurrection in verse 11 differs from the word resurrection in verse 10. In verse 11, the word has a little preposition in front of it, and the preposition is ek, which is the equivalent of our word out. The word resurrection literally means to place or stand up or stand out among others. That's what he's talking about. To the Greek mind, living people were standing, dead people were laying down. So Paul wants to give the spiritually dead a preview here on earth what glory is going to be. Think about that. We as a church family, we are to give the world a preview of what's coming. And how do we do that? By our personal walk with the Lord? By our walk together as a fellowship? By how we treat each other? By how we love each other? You remember what John said, the world will know them by their love. The greatest testimony we have is our love for each other. Because when people discover a group of people that love each other above all things and live for each other, they'll walk through walls to find out how to get it. You are a living, walking testimony. And that's what Paul is saying in this aspect here. Paul wants to give the spiritually dead a preview of what's coming. And you see, when we accept Christ, our eternity starts at that point. Our goal should be to live as though we're already in glory. That is my truest witness. In other words, as I walk here on earth, I want to be so living for Christ, so outstanding for him, that anyone looking at me will understand what glory is all about. That I have a life that knows Jesus Christ. And when they look at me, they're not seeing me, they're seeing Christ in me. They're seeing the attitude of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. They're seeing one who can love beyond the faults that are done to it. They're seeing someone who can rise above it all because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I don't need to be brought down. I'll hurt. I'll be attacked. I'm human. But immediately, we give it to the Spirit, and we rise up in a powerful, powerful example. Is it your desire to be so living for Christ that you will appear as someone who's already been resurrected? If you can show them what Christ is, you can affect their lives. What is the single most important goal of your life right now? Is Christ even a thought? For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. May, G may the world see Christ in you and I. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these powerful verses that just so draws to the desire to know you. Paul just doesn't want to know about you. He's just not serving you here on earth till he gets to glory. He's living, breathing Christ now. He's allowed the power of Christ to live through him. And the amazing thing for all of us 
is that you desire the very same thing for us. Doesn't matter if you're eight years old or 80. God wants to live through you. He wants to radiate the power of Christ in you. He wants you to be Christ to others. As we've seen before, before the foundation of the earth, he ordained a life set apart for us. And if we would be faithful and give ourselves to him, we would be able to run and not be weary and walk and not faint. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us the zeal as we leave this morning to know that I must decrease and you must increase. Thank you for what you're calling.